0: Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that it is your pleasure to take us who are sinful, to take us who are so far from perfect, so hopeless on our own, and not only to save us, but then to have your spirit and your son inhabit us that we could sing that it's not I but it's Christ in me the hope of glory lord that you would you would not only save me but that you would that you would call me your own you would call us your own that You would not just pull us out of the the muck and the mire of the hopelessness that we're in, but that You would clean us, that You would make us new, and You would entrust us to do Your work. God, some days it it is hard to fathom Your kindness. And it's, it's really hard, God, to imagine how much You love us that You would do such a thing. And not only that You would save us, but that You would be patient while we grow. We are, we are so far from Your holiness, even though that's what we attain toward. We... We fall so short, and you forgive us, and you shape us, and you're not done. Lord, I pray that this morning as we open your word, that uh, that you would shape our hearts. That you would, you would deepen our walk with you. That you would let us see what you've saved us from, and what you've saved us to, and And even though the the full realization of that is not always immediate, God, we pray that you would give our hearts understanding and give us the power that we need to be obedient to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as an NFL quarterback who was a first-round pick, he became the first rookie QB to win his first three starts. He has the third most postseason road wins by any quarterback. He has the most playoff wins by a rookie. He holds franchise records for the most postseason wins, the longest playoff touchdown pass, the most game winning drives in a single season, and the most. Regular season wins by a starting quarterback. He had over 1,500 completions for 16,000 plus yards and 95 touchdowns. But even after all of that, Mark Sanchez is remembered for one play and primarily one play only. That is the infamous butt fumble. Where on a quarterback draw, he ran into his own offensive lineman, dropped the ball, was then recovered by the other team, and they ran it for a touchdown being one of their three touchdowns in about a two-minute span in a game that they thoroughly routed the Jets. Now, in in this series, I think that's enough. Um, (laughs) Once it's funny, it just gets more and more painful the more you see it. And he was a veteran quarterback when that happened. And in this, it's so easy no matter how much good we do to get known really well for a couple of key mistakes, isn't it? And in this series, we, the first two sermons, as we've talked about what we're saved from and what we're saved to, the first two weeks were immediate changes that happened to us. The moment you're saved, you go from death to life. The moment you're saved, you go from being a stranger to God, to being alienated to God, to belonging to the body of Christ, to in his family. Like these are immediate changes. And then, the more we've gone, it's become more matters of sanctification. There are things that are true, but there are things that we slowly realize. There are things that we grow in. Going from despair to joy is not a light switch. It takes a while. There's there's moments that we as believers, we regularly face despair, and yet we, we find through the strength of God, through Christ in us, joy in the midst of those moments of despair. And last week, this week, and next week, it's, it's less of immediate changes. It's more of a trajectory that we get set on and, and a matter of personal sanctification that takes place over years as we live through Christ. And once, once we are saved, once we enter into faith with Christ, we enter onto this, this life plan called sanctification. You know, Paul says in Philippians 1-6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we're in this this moment where God is still working out his plan, bringing about this good and perfect work in us that'll be realized in full when we get to heaven. And it's really hard. Sanctification, it's like watching a tree grow. You get this little sapling from the tree nursery, the plant nursery, Earl Earl May, whatever it is. You, You plant it in your yard, and if you just stare at it, it's really boring. But if you track the growth on like a one-year anniversary type basis or a five-year basis, you see a lot of growth. You see the, the thickness of the trunk develop, the height shoot up. You see the branches spread out. If it's, if, it's a, if it's a tree that feeds you, you get more and more produce every year as it grows, as it stays healthy. And as you look at those five-year marks, you see that this tree is growing like crazy. But when you watch it, like, oh, it's the same as it was yesterday. And our sanctification can be really, seem really slow on a day-in and day-out basis. But when you look back to where you were spiritually five, ten years ago, you can see, oh, there's, there's new things happening in my life right now. There's knowledge of God that's deeper than it was. There's service of God that's more fruitful than it was. There's... there's a more readiness in my heart to forgive. And so these processes of sanctification and and the one that we're really looking at today is our selfish ambition. We are saved from a selfish ambition to a selfless trajectory and becoming more and more selfless and self-giving. But this is an area specifically where it's really easy for us as believers to be known for our flaws. And for for people outside the church, this is like the big target to throw rocks at. Like I say, oh, I don't want to go to a church. It's full of hypocrites. It's everyone. There's it's just gossip all the time, backstabbing. It's you could just call it it's selfish ambition. It's people pursuing their own good. And Paul, this morning we're going to be in Philippians 2, And Paul's writing about this issue. The theologian Karl Barth says there's. No letters in the New Testament apart from problems in the church. Paul wrote these letters for a reason. He didn't just string together words. He wasn't thinking, you know, there's a church in Des Moines that will benefit from this in a couple thousand years, so I'm just going to send it to the Philippians. They're doing great. They don't need it at all. That wasn't his thought. He's writing the letters that that address issues that churches have. Our natural inclination is to work in our own self-interest. To look out for number one. To, to make sure we get ours. But that ideology is cancer to the body of Christ. And through salvation in Christ, he saves us from that selfless shame, selfish aim to a selfless life. Now Paul, he starts this passage in Philippians 2, and he has a series of ifs. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if you've been at all encouraged by Jesus... Any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy. If if these things are true of you, if you've you've been encouraged by Christ, comforted by His love, if you've participated with the Spirit, if you've felt conviction of your sin, drawn understanding from Scripture, been been gifted for ministry, if you have any affection or sympathy, and I, I hope what you realize is happening here is Paul I, these ifs are setting an unbelievably low bar. If you're in the church, you have skin and you breathe, then make my joy complete. If, if you've come to the knowledge and the faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, God rose him again, and he's your Lord, then make my joy complete. These are, these are so low. It's, it's, he's making universal if claims of believers. And then he goes through a series of instructions followed by a supreme example, all aimed at reminding us to grow in our Christ-likeness. We need to remember, we are Christ's disciples, and and the goal of the disciple is to become a carbon copy of the rabbi. And this passage has a trajectory of Christ-likeness. So here it is, when we are saved, we start a journey of growing in Christ-likeness. And as we grow in Christ's likeness, we give up our status. See, Paul, he sets out these series of ifs. If if you've been encouraged by Christ, if you've participate with the Spirit. If you have any comfort from His love, if you have affection or sympathy, be of the same, complete my joy, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Be a unified church. Be a unified body of Christ. And then he goes to the biggest threat of that. And the biggest threat of that is our natural instincts as people before Christ. And that natural instinct is our selfishness. So he goes, set aside your status. Check your status at the door. He says, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Some versions say a vain conceit, but in humility, uh, count others as more significant than yourselves. The problem facing the church is too many people coming in thinking they have status. Thinking that the collective group owes them something. As though we are, you know, coming in and saying, well, I'm I'm glad you all got to see me today. You're blessed. I'm going to go ahead and take all the positions of authority now because, frankly, that's what I deserve, and it's what's best for you. It's a selfish ambition, this vain conceit. Um... This is, uh, you could translate the vain conceit as uh, um, empty glory. And Paul forbids these behaviors, saying we should avoid the selfish ambition, the self-promotion, the empty glory that was so prevalent. See, this is not just a, an American culture thing. This is, this is long-standing. Roman culture thrived on the, on the selfish ambition but it's but it didn't end with them it goes on one commentator says selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness where self-interest and self-aggrandizement at the expense of others primarily dictates our values and behaviors this sort of self-promotion is still at the center of our culture and it and what it does is it values the self not only over other people saying I'm going to promote myself even at the, at the risk of jeopardizing the other people around me, the other people in my company, the other people in my family, the other people in my organization, uh, the other people in my church. I'm going to promote myself even at risk to them. As long as I get ahead, that's all that matters. And that's the selfish ambition. That's the vain conceit. And, it, and it, stands against God, it stands against people. It says, I'm more valuable than people. And it says, I'm more valuable than God. Because those people are made in his likeness. And he's told us to love them. And it's saying, God, your plan isn't good enough. I'm going to advance myself ahead of whatever your schedule is. I'm going to promote myself, because if I don't do it, no one will. And this is a dog-eat-dog world, and I'm just going to go out and do everything I need to to get ahead in life. It is fear-based survival, not faith-based freedom. And it has bad fruit. In James 3.16, James contrasts selfish ambition with wisdom. And he's saying we should ask God for wisdom, And he says this, but for uh, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Because we won't love God when we act in that selfish ambition that vain conceit. And so Paul forbids this empty glory of self. And then he gives an instruction that's really hard for the original people and and let's let's be honest it's really hard for us in humility count others as more significant than yourself this is an instruction to look around the room and and look at the faces look at your family and say they're more significant than me and you you hear stories, and some of you have survived, many of you have, have survived or been through one side or the other of major church conflicts, major church splits. And I, I wish we could go back in time and just speak John 13, where Jesus wrapped himself in the cloth and washed the disciples' feet, and speak, speak Philippians 2 and say, Count others as more significant than yourself. Don't walk into the room with your agenda saying, I know all the answers. If you guys would just listen to me and get in line, we could correct this ship. We could do things that would, that would just make us really famous. We could build a tower in our name. And instead, in humility, go into the room and say, wow, these people are more significant than me. And so I'm going to value what they have to say. I'm going to submit myself to their instruction, and I'm going to count it a pleasure to serve the people in this room. To embrace the humility of Christ. To be more and more into His likeness. But but this is really hard to do, and it starts, if we're going to have a humility that values others, Uh, that counts others as more significant than ourselves, it it means that we need to have a right view of ourselves, And a right view of ourselves starts with a right view of God. That He is our creator. That He is our sustainer. That He is the one who saved us. That the only reason any of us have any status at all within the body of Christ is because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That I was made in God's likeness. And I rebelled against Him, and through the grace of God, Jesus died on the cross, rose again, securing my salvation, so I can call Him Father. That I am the for that Jesus died for sinners, of which I am the foremost. It's what Paul told Timothy, accept this phrase with saying, which is, which is true. Christ died for sinners, of which I am the foremost. And that I am a work in progress. Marcus Bachmull says this, instead of pursuing their own prestige, that strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion, the Philippians are called the humility, the lowliness of heart, which agrees to treat And think of others preferentially. He says this, and we'll have it up on the screen there. The biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned groveling, nor a sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. It involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and entrusting one's fortunes to God rather than, one's own, rather than to one's own abilities and resources. So it's not, this humility is not making a show of saying, oh, look, you guys are all better than me. Look, look at me, I'm taking pride in my humility. Look how humble I am, be like me, because that's its own pride. Because it's fake. Instead, it it acknowledges, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I don't need to prove my status because God has already saved me. Jesus has already seated me in the heavenly places. I don't need to prove anything to anyone. God has taken care of it all. And it frees me from having to secure a legacy for my own name. I'm free from having to secure my legacy for my name from having to shout something like O'Doyle rules, to being able to serve the people around me. My hands are not tied to my own fame, but they're tied to the fame of Christ. And when my hands are tied to the fame of Christ, I'm no longer a slave to making myself great, but I'm able to love people around me freely because that's what makes much of Jesus. So we, we lay aside our status as we grow in our Christ-likeness. We give up our status. I'm going to give up my selfish ambition, my vain conceit. I'm going to lower myself for others. And I'm also, I'm going to give up my priority. And giving up our priority is this natural outflow of lowering ourselves for others because not only do we see ourselves rightly when we examine ourselves through Scripture, but we also see others rightly. And we're able to lower ourselves in the presence of others and exalt their interests, lift up their interests And pursue their interests because we see them as made in God's likeness. We see them as as having been loved by God so much that he sent Jesus to die for them. We see them, if they're a believer, this is a fellow child of God. If they're not a believer, if they don't love Jesus, then we see them as someone who needs to know their Heavenly Father. And so we love and serve them out of desire that they will see God as their Heavenly Father. And if they're counted as what Matthew 25 would call the least of these, then we know that whatever we do to them, we do to Jesus. And as we do all those things, as we see people made in God's likeness, saved by God, needing to be saved by God, or as the least of these so we we can serve them as we serve Jesus, it becomes only natural that I would say, I have these things on my agenda, but I need to serve you. I'm not only going to humble myself, humble my status, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set aside my priority. I'm going to take out my spot in line to help you move up. There comes a point, there's, there's two phrases that become really common. One phrase is we say, oh, I, I would love to be in a church like what we see in Acts where they had everything in common. I'm, I, I, just can't, I just can't be a part of any church except for that. So we have that on one phrase. I want to be in a church that, like Acts, has everything in common, and the sentiment that we don't always vocalize but is often within our heart. You can't take care of others until you take care of yourself. I got to get me right. I got to do me. And if I'm saying I want to be in a church that has everything in common and I I can't help others till I help myself. i got to get my own stuff together before I can serve anyone else. Those two phrases become incompatible. Our heart and our actions and our motives will choose one of them. And this is where sanctification comes in, because if you're anything like me, well, Monday I was really strong over here, but Tuesday I had a pretty good day. I really served the church but until like 2 and then it went back to me and and my this this is just me confessing my sin my balance of 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 selfish ambition and humility at times looks more like a yo-yo than it does a trajectory towards Christ likeness where i i feel like man i I can look back and be like, boy, I was just so up and down. I wasn't growing towards Christ, and I don't feel like that. And that's an opportunity for me to repent and to grow in Christ. There's no corporate ladder in the church. Everyone has been saved by grace, is trying to grow closer to God to serve Him and proclaim His name While we await his return. In Westchester, that's the global church. Westchester is just a local expression of that. Where we're gathered together as a couple hundred people just trying to love Jesus and grow more and more in his likeness. And proclaim his fame. And we're trying to experience his love and extend his love. But setting aside our status, setting aside our priority does not begin in the hallways of Westchester as a building. It doesn't begin at the programming events of us as a church. It begins in our homes. How are we doing at setting aside our status and priority within our marriages? Are you seeking to just completely lay yourself aside and love your spouse on their terms? For some reason, it means a lot to my, you know, you, this is hypothetical. It may, <laughs> let me start with that, it's hypothetical. <laughs> Maybe for your spouse, this will make it easier to sound hypothetical. Maybe for your spouse, it just makes a, it's a really big deal to them to walk by an empty sink of dishes. And so loving your spouse on their terms means you do the dishes whenever you walk by and see them. Maybe physical touch is a really big deal to them. So you be sure to put your arm around them, to hold their hand, to give them that extra hug, to give them that extra affection. Maybe time spent is a big deal, so you cut down on your commitments outside the home. Maybe screen time is a really big detractor for them, and so you're not checking the scores, you're not checking the Instagram stories at the end of the day, but you just leave the phone in the other room. And then you translate this to your kids. Your kids have love languages that they perceive as well, that, they, that means a big deal for them if you write them a note and leave it in their lunchbox. If you send them texts throughout the day that you're thinking of them, that you're praying for them, maybe events are a big deal so you find time to go out and do something with them specifically that they've been looking forward to. You serve each other. You set aside your status and priority within your family. That that moms don't only get a break on Mother's Day. That we're eager to refill a beverage that we are eager to hear about the day, that we are eager to love them on their terms. And it starts in the home. It spreads to the community. It takes place within the church. When we view others as God made them, it no longer becomes an obligation. Because there's times where we do this because we have to. I need to lay myself down for the people in my family, so I'm going to do it. I'm just going to grit my teeth and I'm going to do it. And there's days where it's gritting my teeth and it's doing it. And there's other days, the more sanctified days... where these are people made in God's likeness, for God's glory, and it is an absolute honor to serve them. It is an absolute honor to fill in the blank with with whatever the task is that means a lot to your family. It is an honor to set aside my priority, my status, because it's not a corporate ladder. Henry now, in, in his book on Christian leadership in the name of Jesus, says this, the way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility, he's contrasting it to the corporate world, not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending in the cross. That we are continually humbling ourselves for those we lead, whether we lead them in a Sunday school classroom, our home, or on a short-term mission trip, or in any sort of ministry or family context, we lead in a way that leads to the cross. As we give up our status, it's natural to give up our priority. It's natural to look at the interests of others. And in doing so, I think we will see as we grow in Christ's likeness, we grow in generosity. As we experience God's love, we extend God's love. And, and we grow in generosity, and so many times we limit gener- generosity to financial, and certainly that's there. Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 commends the Macedonian church because they, out of the love of Christ, they gave for the church and they gave beyond what they could afford and they were eager, wanting to give again, begging for that opportunity and it was the love of Christ they were responding to the grace of God. But it's not just financial. It's generous with our words that we only say what builds others up according to their needs, Ephesians 4.29. That we become generous with encouragement, with the I'm so thankful for you, I'm so I'm so glad you're here. You've meant so much to me. I'm so proud of you. That we become generous with the service in our marriage, our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our church. That we become generous with emotion, expressing empathy and affection towards one another. That we rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve. That we become generous with our forgiveness, having our standard be Christ. That we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And this could be soul-crushing work if we do it with the wrong motives. If we put others ahead of ourselves, hoping we get something out of it, if we sneak in little bits of selfish ambition and vain conceit, this work of prioritizing other interests instead of our own will be soul-crushing. <coughs> it will disappoint us. It will leave us feeling empty. And so I, I, I just want to put in front of us as an example Ephesians 5.21 where he has these instructions to a church and then he goes through different, different relationships. He goes through marriage. He goes through parenting. He goes through work. But it starts with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm not asking, I'm not asking the wives in here to lay aside their own interests and pursue the interests of their husbands because their husbands are great. I know your husbands. No, they're great, they're great. I'm not asking you to do it because your husband is great. I'm asking you to do it out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, I'm not asking you to lay down yourselves for your wives because they're great. I'm asking you to do it, I'm telling you to do it out of reverence for Christ. As a church, I'm not... I'm not telling us to lay aside our interests so that we can serve the body, whether it be through nursery, children's ed, through, through buildings and grounds, through the Global Partners team, through the Care and Fellowship team, through any of the ministries we have here at Westchester. I'm not asking you to help make pancakes on Friday mornings or to bring in a bunch of school supplies because the people who are getting these things, who are benefiting from these ministries are so great. I'm asking you to serve out of reverence for Christ and because you're growing in your Christ-likeness. We do it out of reverence for Christ because we not only give up our status and our priority, we give up our personal glory. This is a setting aside of myself and saying, you know what, I'm not the one to be made much of here. Because Paul then, he goes to verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be like-minded with Christ as you grow in your Christ-likeness. And then he here's what he does. He, he starts quoting what a lot of people think is a song that was sung in churches. That though he was, in the, he was the form of God, he did, not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't lay hold of his privilege and be like, Ha-ha, I got a throne, and I deserve a throne bow down. You know, that wasn't him, but he, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Having the mind of Christ means that we lay down what we think our rights and our privileges are, because he laid down what his actual rights and privileges were. He set aside the throne and exchanged it for a manger. We lay aside our self-perceived glory because of the humility of Jesus, the model that He had of laying aside His glory, emptying Himself to serve us, to be put in human likeness, to take on humanity. And not even luxurious humanity, but born in a barn to a poor family, who had to offer doves because they couldn't afford the sheep. He looked to the needs of others, primarily to that of God the Father to be worshipped. God, you need to be worshipped by the people of this earth. And so I'm going to lay down my life so you can be. And he laid down his life for our needs because we needed to be saved. And while we were still sinners and we had no capacity to recognize what he was doing, he died for us. Instead of, instead of his own glory, he hung himself on a cross. And the text goes on to say, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee, shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We, ex- we set aside our glory, not only because of his model, but because his glory is so far superior to our own. We recognize his glory. That he, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through whom God created all things, added on humanity to himself so that the human flesh that he took on could be torn so that the blood that was pumping through his veins could be spilled out for us. And as we grow in Christ's likeness, how are we to do anything but grow in this example of setting aside ourself for the glory of God? Of dropping our selfish ambition and taking on the selflessness that was so wonderfully displayed in Christ Jesus himself. And as we remember that today, as we take communion, as we remember that, would we be moved to lay down ourselves for the glory of God? Would we worship Him? Would, would our knees bow, would our tongues proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? As those who are going to serve us communion come forward, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this this truth that Jesus died, that He took on flesh, that He made Himself nothing, that He took on the form of a servant, and that He took on flesh for His flesh to be torn, that He humbled Himself to to death, even to death on a cross. God, You are so good. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and his resurrection. We thank you for his humility that he emptied himself. And that now he sits on the throne no longer emptied, but full of glory. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.